Corinne Barraclough show. Coming up, I'll be talking to Mario Clay, a father from Colombia who was alienated from his beloved son. He was married for 17 years. She was unfaithful and his backstory is really emotional. The whole story is actually really powerful. I'm looking forward to sharing that today. To start, I want to say a few things about the Blocks' Darren Jolly, former AFL player who thankfully was found safe after he went missing. He shared a really concerning online tribute to his kids ahead of preparing for a messy court battle with his estranged wife. They announced their split in September last year after 15 years of marriage. In the post, he talked about his unbearable pain I'm done, he wrote, the unbearable pain of not seeing my beautiful girls for the last 14 months is too much to cope with. I am the victim of extreme parental alienation and no one in the family court system cares. No one is looking out for my girls. He continued, looking back through these photos broke what little I have left of my heart as it showed how much my girls loved me. His manager spent several hours trying to get in touch with him and thankfully he was found safe and well. This could have had a very different ending and today we will be talking about mental health, pretending that men don't open up about their feelings, blaming them for bottling things up. Instead, in black and white, we have a thorough explanation of precisely what pushed a man to breaking point we have a glimpse at what he was struggling with, which nearly finished him. And so now what? Isn't it time we get honest about the impact of relationship breakdown and custody disputes on men? Isn't it time we get real about the awful, immense impact parental alienation is having on fathers, good fathers, and their mental health? Personally, I'm sick of the media coverage around these issues, sick of it. When a man lashes out at his ex and his children, we're not allowed to talk about what contributed to him getting to that point. We're not allowed to talk about the contributing factors, the emotional exhaustion, the heartache. So what about when we're confronted with this? How does the media respond? It's just, thank God he's safe and well. And that's it. It's not good enough. That's not the whole story. It's not enough to say that we care about mental health and then, when confronted with something like this, not get honest about how all of this fits together. By ignoring this, we are failing to learn lessons. The truth is, there are far too many cases like this across Australia and all around the world. Each case is different, and yet the failure of the family law system in protecting children is repeated over and over and over again. Parental alienation is abuse. It's happening every minute of every day. It's ruining lives and costing lives. One day, the government will wake up and do something about this, and that day, frankly, can't come soon enough. Now, Let's have a look at my interview with Mario Clay, a father who was alienated from his son. He now has a really powerful message to share. Hi, Mario. Talk to me about your relationship, your ex-relationship. I understand that you were together for you were together for a long time, weren't you? Was it seventeen years? Yeah, we were together for seventeen years. Married for seventeen years. Married for seventeen. So, how long were you dating before you got married? About a year. Dated for about a year. Okay. And over those 17 years, was that happy? Like, what was the relationship like? 
Um, it started off happy, and then you know, unfortunately, things tapered off. Uh, we grew right. apart. Um, unfaithfulness there, you know. Which on sense. her part. On her part, yes. Right, and did you find out about that by accident, or did she tell you, or can I ask um, that? Every time it was by accident. It was never on purpose that I found out. Right. Okay. So and that became a pattern, did it, with her? Yeah. It, it became a vicious cycle that she couldn't break. Right. Okay. And you, so while you were together and while you were married for 17 years, you had two children. Is that correct? Yeah, we had two little boys. Right two now, little the boys. Is 15 and the youngest is seven. Okay. Tell me about the first, the firstborn. Tell me about how that felt, like being a father for the first time. So because of my childhood, being a father was something that I always felt like I had to be perfect at. I may not be a perfect person, but I know for a fact I'm a perfect father. I do everything that I, I need to do for him. And it was just, it was just a joy. Everything about him was a joy. He was a daddy's boy. He's 15. He still is. You know, that's just my guy. <laughs> and let me just pick you. This is going slightly off topic, but let me just ask you a little bit about you stay there because of your childhood. Did you have a tough father? Um. So as far as that goes, I had beyond a tough childhood. Um, when I was about six months old, um, my mom took my brother, my sister, and I and left, went to another state. Um, my mother was addicted to drugs. My childhood involved, you know, molestation, you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, neglect. And I didn't move, move in with my father until I was 13. And then by the time I moved in with him, I was already setting my ways. And unfortunately, because of the things that my mother would tell, you know, my brother and I about our father, I didn't like my dad because I thought he was this bad person. When come to find out, he wasn't, you know, and, and unfortunately. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Tell me more about that. So when you, so she had always um, made him out to be the bad guy. And tell me about how you found out that that wasn't true. So she always told us stories about how my father would beat her or, how he didn't care about us and he didn't want to see us. But it was just weird because I can remember on, you know, a few times, a few couple times on Christmas, uh, the UPS truck would come and we would get packages and it would say this man's name on there. And the next day that the box would be gone. The packages and everything would be gone. And I would ask her about it and she would just tell me, you know, they weren't for, they weren't for her. They were for one of her friends. And just the stories of him putting his hands on her, you know, not wanting us and so on and so forth. It literally, I built up, I hate my heart for him, but I'll mm -hmm. never forget. I was 15 and every boy goes through that phase that they think they're stronger and they can beat their father and they're smarter than their dad. Every boy does. And I was at the, I was at the pinnacle of that phase and he sat me down. And he asked me what my issue was. And I just told him, you know, you never cared about me. You know, I went through all these things when I was a kid and you weren't there. You chose to live your life with your new wife and so on and so forth. And he just looked at me. He said, son, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I paid my child support. I did this. I did that. 
And he took me in his office and he sat me down and he went into his uh, closet and he pulled out this this box, cardboard box. It was a shipping box and it had two shoe boxes in there. And in these two shoe boxes, one was for receipts and the other one was for paycheck stubs. And he pulled out the paycheck stubs and he showed me how he paid his child support every time he got paid. And then he showed me the receipts for all the toys that he would buy us and mail us and the clothes and the shoes that we never got. He would show oh, receipts man. for shipping and everything. So I resent my father. Mm-hmm. And, I, and unfortunately, that affected the relationship that we had, I'll say about until six months before he passed away. We finally were able to like see eye to eye. Because you found it hard to let go of all of that conditioning. Yeah, because no one wants to believe that their mom is, is, is lying. Because at the end of the day, no matter what mom does, mom's perfect. Yes. Dad is always the bad guy. Yeah. And, 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 and some of the things she said to me, unfortunately, resonated with me, and I just couldn't let him go. And here, here I was 30, 35, and I was finally able to let him go. And by then, he was only around for another six months before he passed away. Oh, Maria, that's so sad. I don't know if you know, my, I was alienated from my father, and I tracked him down and um, had this kind of similar similar kind of experience to you where I was 40 by the time I um, tracked him down and found that what I'd been told wasn't true and it it's I hate saying this because I don't want to sound depressing but there's a whole lifetime gone on by then you've lived uh, you know your whole life with with a worldview and um, an opinion and a, a kind of belief system around what your father is and it doesn't just magically flick a switch and change when you find out that that isn't true. It doesn't just happen like that, does it? No, it definitely doesn't. It's not like turning on a light switch and turning it off. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that background. So when you had your first child, that was obviously a huge deal for you. Um, I mean, obviously having a child is a huge deal for anyone, but given your background, it must have been incredibly special for you. Tell me, like how excited you were before the birth and then in those early few months before the birth I was beyond excited um I didn't miss any prenatal appointments I went to every I went to every single one um I had his nursery done we found out he was pregnant when she was three months I had his nursery done while she was six months I was ready (laughs) I was ready I was beyond ready Um, and after he was born he was just he was just so special to me this this little this little this little little worm basically that can fit his head would fit in my palm of my hand and his legs wouldn't even be at my elbow and everything I did he did when I looked at he looked at he was just so special to me and then what kind of things did you enjoy doing as a father in some of those early years um just We'd, we'd ride bikes, uh, teach him how to ride bikes, play basketball, baseball. Ironically, he's pretty good at basketball. Not me, though. I don't know where he got that from. But <laughs> he's, he's really good at basketball. He played baseball. Um, he was in sports a lot. We read every night, and we had this little mantra that we would say every night. And we still do it now when he's 15, and it's just something really simple. I just say, if you can dream it, he says you can achieve it. I followed up with, if you take the T out of Kent, what does it spell? And he spells his name. 
and we still do that to this day. <laughs> That's so cute. And then you had second child, another son. How? When did you find out that you were having a second son, and how exciting was that? So eight years after the oldest was born, mm-hmm. we had another one, had, had, had our baby. And again, you know, I was excited. I wanted a girl. I'll never tell him, but I wanted a girl. But, you know, he was just, he's just my little rambunctious little fireball. Doesn't sit still. Always wants to fight with me. Always wants to wrestle. You know, just my guy. He's my guy as well. I love that little guy. <laughs> now, I'm sorry to touch on something which must be um, probably painful memories, but tell me about the end of that relationship. Like, how did it, how did it fall apart? And what was the breakup like? How messy was it? So the relationship originally started falling apart before the baby was born. But unfortunately, because of my childhood, I wanted my, you know, my boys, you know, my, my oldest at the time was just him. So I wanted him to have both his parents in his life. I wanted him to grow up in a two-parent household because I thought that was the only way that he would have some type of normalcy. Um, but we, you know, we just started, we would argue, we wouldn't do things together. Um, it was just me doing everything and her hanging out with her friends, going out, me being dad, going to work, coming home, doing everything around the house. And then we decided, you know, hey, maybe we can go to marriage counseling and try to make it work. We went to marriage counseling, which should have been a red flag for me because in marriage counseling, everything she brought up was nothing that had ever happened in our relationship. Um, I still decided to stick it out and we found out we were pregnant with our youngest. And after he was born, it was just, everything was just like a, it was just a blur to me. I was just, just riding that wave, hoping for my baby to turn 18, expecting it to hurry up and be over. But, um, just talking to more people, you know, coworkers and everything like that. Um, my stepmom and everyone's looking at me and they're like, you know, you, you, you're getting pretty depressed. What's going on? I'm like, no, I'm fine. You know, I always have that I'm good attitude. Or I'm, I'll tell people I'm golden when I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like if I just kept hiding it, everything would be okay. If I just, you know, kept stuffing it in this box, everything would be okay. And then it got to the point where I was, you know, super depressed, you know, about the way we, we would treat each other. Um, the, the loneliness, you know, there's no feeling worse in the world other than sleeping in a bed with the person every night, but still feeling alone. And I, I always had that feeling of, you know, of, of being alone, even when her and I were together. And then um, we moved to South Carolina in 2015 for a quote unquote fresh start and hoping everything was going to be normal. It just, just turned back into that cycle. You know, cheating, um, me checking text messages on the phone, seeing things, her Facebook, her not being at work when she said she's going to be at work. And then finally, she would leave Friday night and not come home until Monday morning. Oh, and wow. then it just, I was just like, enough is enough. And we had an agreement that we were going to get divorced. And at first, she, did, she kept saying she didn't want the divorce. She didn't want it. She didn't want it. But her actions were doing something totally different. But by that point, I was already four and I, was, I couldn't take anymore. 
you yeah. know, mentally I was drained. It got to a point where, you know, even my, even our son was noticing that something was wrong with daddy. Daddy's not right. You know, he's not smiling. He's not wanting to play. So I just accepted it. And I just said, hey, you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do. And she moved to another state with her boyfriend. And then in, um, I want to say about five or six months later, you know, she came to pick up our youngest and she was supposed to bring him back and she never brought him back. Wow. What date was that, Mario? That was July 15th, 2019. I didn't see him for another 455 days. Oh, wow. Tell me what that was like. Uh, seeing him, it, it felt like it did when he was born again. He walked in, he gave me, he gave me the biggest, tightest hug. And he whispered in my ear and he said, Daddy, I love you. I miss you. I try to call you, but I can't. I just love you. And he just held on to me. And then we started wrestling and then playing with his toys. It was just like a new moment all over again. <laughs> and so tell me, like, so from that date, July 15, 2019, where she didn't bring him back and you suddenly, the child that you absolutely adored and cherished and was your whole world wasn't there. How hard was that on you mentally? Um, it, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with in my life. Um, like I said, I had a very tough childhood and seeing my children go through what I went through hurts more than anything. It's, yeah. it's a very depressing situation to be in. Did you speak to him at all on the phone or did you have no contact whatsoever? As far as contact goes, originally, um, I was able to FaceTime him, um, whenever I wanted. Um, I'd be at work in between jobs, um, driving to the next job. I'd FaceTime him. But when he would be home, I wouldn't be able to talk to him. I can only FaceTime him when he was at a babysitter's house, when he was at a babysitter's house. Right. Then I'd be able to call in the evening every now and then. And then she got upset because some of the things that were in the house, some of the contents that were in the home that we shared, I sold because I was paying for a storage unit and she wasn't helping me and I couldn't keep paying for it. So I sold it. Oh, excuse me. And she got upset. And the next thing you know, I couldn't talk to him anymore. I didn't. The last time I was able to speak to him was July 30th of 2019. I didn't speak to him again until I want to say April 3rd of 2020, which was right. the month of his birthday. And so you went through a whole Christmas? You went through all of that without? Went through a whole Christmas, Thanksgiving, everything without being able to speak to my baby. I would text him on his iPad, um, and it wouldn't go through. So i never forget Christmas Eve. I had sent her text messages at night. I said, hey, can you please unblock me so I can FaceTime you know, the baby in the morning? And she just responded with this nasty text message telling me no. Then her boyfriend responded saying, um, he doesn't need you. Um, you know, we're good here and so on and so forth. It's just, it's just tough. Yeah, really tough. And then did you just keep on trying, keep on trying? What were you telling yourself? Like, how did you keep on going through those really hideous weeks and months? What were you telling yourself in the back of your mind? So in the back of my mind, I would tell myself that he remembers you. Oh, he can't forget you. You have all these pictures. 
everything you do with him, he he's gonna remember you. He's not gonna forget. He can't forget you. You're his dad. You know, you taught him how to ride a bike. You taught him how to throw a baseball, a football. I we used to read together every single night, and we used to make cookies every night. Every night I make twelve cookies for him and his brother. So he couldn't he couldn't forget those things. And then when he saw me, he reminded me he didn't forget. How much did you cry during that time? Uh, I, I cried a lot. I cried a lot. I've I've never cried this much in my life. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I, daily, it was, it was a daily thing. I get in the shower and just like I let let at it. Yeah. Did you talk to anybody? Like, what was your family and friends feedback during that time? Um, two of my actually three of my biggest supporters, and the three people that helped me get through this are my girlfriend. Um, she just lets me know everything's going to be okay. My, uh, my mother, which is my stepmom, I refer to her as my mom, her, and ironically, my ex-wife's father. Right. Those three people, they just talk to me, just tell me everything's going to be okay. And he's not going to forget me. And when my father-in-law would speak to him, you know, to the baby, he let him know, you know, your dad said hi, he loves you. Um, my mom would do the same thing. And Christmas time came and my girlfriend was like, hey, don't forget to buy Maddox's stuff. You know, even though he's not here, buy it for him. When you see him, give it to him. His birthday, same thing. And then when I saw him um, about two weeks ago, I just gave him a, a big box of everything. <laughs> a big box of joy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> so look, the narrative that comes from... I guess, you know, kind of left-wing and activists and people who say good men aren't alienated from their children. You know, it's it's abusive, bad guys, it's bad fathers. How does that make you feel and what do you have to say to that? It's a load of crap. Um, I'm dead, I'm, I'm, so here's the thing. We were together for 17 years. I've never missed anything. I've always been there, field trips, doctor's appointments, Every night I tuck the man, every morning I make him breakfast, pack lunch for school, on my days off, pick him up from the bus stop. I was always there. And unfortunately, the in the eye of the law here, I'm a nobody. I can't even get my oldest son in counseling unless I have the signature of his mom because I technically don't have legal custody, which means that at any moment, just because I'm his father, she can come get him at any time, and there's nothing I can do about it. That's terrifying, isn't it? It's, it's, it's terrifying for me and him. It got to a point where when he would go to school, he would get to school in the morning, he would text me, hey, Daddy, I'm here. And throughout the day, he would text me, hey, just checking on you, just so I knew that he was okay. And then it got to the point where I had to put a GPS on his phone, location device on his phone, so I knew where he was, that he didn't know was on his phone just in case she did come pick him up and, and, I, and I didn't know where she took him because I didn't even know her address until April 1st of this year of where she had my youngest. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I she didn't even know didn't that. She didn't tell you where she was living? No, she didn't tell us anything. I knew nothing, N- not a thing. And I mailed her a package, my son's package. I mailed it to him on April 23rd and I got a notification from UPS saying that uh, it was undeliverable. So I called customer service and the customer service uh, rep that I spoke with let me know that the driver notated that the person 
that the package was addressed to didn't live there. Now I put my ex's number on, uh, name on there as well as my son's name on there. They tried to deliver it two more times. Um, and then it was still unsuccessful. We get it back and on the box, the UPS driver wrote NSP, which stands for no such person at that address. Well, lo and behold, I get divorce papers in the mail and it's the same exact address that she had given me that I had wrote on the box. She just didn't want him to have any of his gifts from me. Oh, and after everything that you've been through, that would have been so hard to take. Yeah, that, that hurt the most. Because yeah. I, I, I was beyond excited the day I ran out this house skipping for joy when I mailed him his packages. And I kept checking, tracking, checking, checking the tracking number. Okay, out for delivery. And then boom, undeliverable. And then tell me, yeah, just so hard to get your head around. Tell me about the moment that you first saw him and uh, what it was like kind of rebuilding that relationship. Because he's seven, we just we just picked it right up. Yeah. You know, we started wrestling. You know, he told me he loved me, um, that he missed me, that he wants to come home. He, he said, he said, my home is in South Carolina. That's where my bed is. That's where my home is. You know, with you and with Bubby, that's what he calls his older brother, Bubby. It just it just felt so good seeing him. Unfortunately, it was supposed to be for two hours, um, but only lasted for about an hour and fifteen minutes because you know she had to leave. She has a boyfriend who's very controlling, and she had to leave. Right. So, do you? I won't get too much into this, but just tell me: Do you? How much of this do you think is coming from her, and how much do you think is coming from the new partner? Um, some of it's coming from her. But mm -hmm. the communication part is coming from a new partner. It's to the right. point where I can't text her. I have to text him. Right. So he's become like the gatekeeper of all of it. Yeah, he's the gatekeeper. When she was driving down here, it's a two and a half hour drive. He would text me and say she'll be there in an hour. Oh. And, and then she's pulling up. So it's, it's uh, so she's allowing him to control her life in every fashion. Yeah, that's quite terrifying in its own whole other story, isn't it? That really is. Yeah. And so where are you at now? I understand you have one, you have Mario the second living with you, is that right? Yes, yes. Mario lives with me. He's here. He's here. Yeah. He's a sophomore in high school. He's here. He's not going anywhere. He's refusing to leave. Unfortunately, when the divorce was filed, she didn't include the kids. And the judge granted the divorce. And now I have to retain an attorney in the state of North Carolina, as well as the state of South Carolina, where I reside. One for, uh -huh. you know, Maddox and one for Mario. And it's not cheap. The cheapest ones I can find in South Carolina, it's $6,000. The cheapest one in North Carolina is $5,300. So I have to come up with this all at one time. Because if I just do North Carolina with Maddox's, then she knows she can just come pick up Mario and there's nothing I can do about it. And isn't it awful? You know, I hear this all the time and it seems, unfortunately, to be the same all around the world. Fathers having to fight to stay in their children's lives and having to find a fortune to be able to, whatever legal um, process and, and legal system that they have to kind of fight their way through, it costs a fortune. So it's mental health being affected, finances being affected. 
it's 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 your whole life being affected, isn't it? It is, and it's just what I found to be the most ridiculous is that there's a pro bono program out here, and I called to see if they would help me, and the lady told me no. She said we don't help men; we only help women. Wow. And that makes no sense. So I have to fight to be a father. Yes. It's, it shouldn't be a fight to be a father. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. I not went through what we went through, but our kids shouldn't be subjected to the, the you know, the the way her actions, basically. Yes. Yeah. And again, I can't even get my oldest in counseling because she won't sign off on it. That doesn't make sense. But she can take into counseling, but I can't. Yeah, it's it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's not equality, is it? No, it's not. It makes no sense no. whatsoever. Yeah. And tell me, just lastly, before I let you go, what message would you give to other fathers who are alienated from their children right now? Like there would be lots of them in Australia, in America, all around the world. What message of hope can you give them? Don't give up. Just don't give up because at the end of the day, your kids need you and everything you go through one day, if it's not today or 10 years from now, they'll realize that you, you never gave up on them. And that means a lot. Just don't give up. Keep fighting the good fight. There's yeah. no, no reason for you to give up. Just don't give up. Well said. Mario, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'll check in with you soon and see how you're going. Okay, cool. Cool. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah. Have a good one. What a story, hey. I'll keep in touch with Mario as I do with everyone I speak to and check in down the track to see how he's doing. Now, I feel like we've had a bit of a theme running through this show about ignoring men's pain. We talked about struggling to be honest about Darren Jolly's pain. We heard Mario's story about pain. And look at this tweet coming from Respect UK. It says... Michael called the men's advice line because his fiancée abused him physically and financially. He found it difficult to accept that he was a victim of domestic abuse because he's a man. If you're a man in an abusive situation, contact us. Can I just shine a light here on the words, he found it difficult to accept that he was a victim of domestic abuse because he's a man? Well, actually, that's not true, is it? He may have found it difficult because this organisation, like many gender-biased organisations around the world, have actively campaigned to make domestic violence a gender issue. We cannot blame men for the fact that organisations have force-fed this narrative or for the fact that governments have poured millions of dollars in funding into this warped, fraudulent, gendered narrative. It's not men's fault. It is never a victim's fault. I see that, you see that, many sane, sensible people all around the globe see that. When will our government wake up? Before I go, you can probably see here, the new studio is underway. It's all coming together beautifully. And if you would like to help us, head to the link on screen now, and we would very much appreciate it. Right, that's enough Barraclough for now. See you next week. The Corin Barraclough Show is a production of The Good Source, hosted by Corin Barraclough. To watch, listen to or read more new media without the social justice warrior narratives or politically correct fact filter, visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show. 